Our guest today is Rocky Duan. Rocky did his undergrad and PhD at Berkeley, where he pioneered some of the earliest deep reinforcement learning work, including building what became the origins of the OpenAI gym. Next, Rocky, by then still only 21 years old, was one of the very first hires at OpenAI, where he pioneered some of the earliest meta-learning work, including first modern era papers on learning to reinforcement learn and learning to imitate. For the learning to imitate work, Rocky invented an architecture actually quite similar to today's attention mechanisms that became popularized through the transformer. In 2017, at age 23, Rocky left OpenAI and co-founded Covariant, where he still today is the CTO and develops artificial intelligence for the next generation of robotic automation. Aside from being well-known to be incredibly productive, most often quoted as at least 10 times more productive than any of the other exceptionally productive people you might know, Rocky is also widely known as one of the nicest people ever. Rocky, so great to have you here with us. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Peter. It's my great pleasure to be on this podcast. So good to have you, Rocky. But before diving into today's conversation, I'd like to thank our podcast sponsors, Index Ventures and Weights and Biases. Index Ventures is a venture capital firm that invests in exceptional entrepreneurs across all stages from seed to IPO. With offices in San Francisco, New York, and London, the firm backs founders across a variety of verticals, including artificial intelligence, SaaS, fintech, security, gaming, and consumer. On a personal note, Index is an investor in Covarian, and I couldn't recommend them any higher. Weights and Biases is an ML ops platform that helps you train better models faster with experiment tracking, model and dataset versioning, and model management. They're used by OpenAI, NVIDIA, and almost every lab releasing a large model. In fact, many, if not all of my students at Berkeley and colleagues at Covarian are big users of weights and biases. Rocky, let's start with what you're doing today. You are co-founder and CTO of Covarian, which of course we founded together. What does Covarian do? At Covarian, our mission is to build universal AI that enable robots to learn and operate in the real world to assist humans with repetitive and laborious tasks. And today we are starting with the warehousing and logistics industry. And this is an industry where labor shortage and high turnover rate is a very real and growing problem. And if we look at what the human operators are doing today, they need to perform highly repetitive tasks that involve transporting goods from one place to another. And this sounds simple, but turns out to be very challenging for our traditional automation to tackle entirely. And at Covariant, we are building AI-powered robotic systems that automate various processes um, involving currently humans using their hands to manipulate objects, like picking things up, scanning them, and placing them to various destinations. Interesting what you said there, Rocky. It seems simple to do pick and place. In fact, I think most people listening to the podcast will probably be like, okay, I can definitely pick and place some objects in a warehouse. That seems very feasible. And 
It doesn't require extensive training, like becoming a medical doctor or something like that. But it's, it's hard for robots, as you said. And in fact, some people have called it the holy grail of robotics if you can solve warehouse pick and place. Can you dive a bit deeper? Why is it so hard to make a robot do that? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And just want to echo that it's something that us humans can do like so, uh, like so easily without thinking about it. And in fact, we can even do it blindfolded. And on the other hand, like it's, it is indeed really challenging for robotics and it's not solvable by just programming robots to follow instructions, which is why it's been challenging for uh, traditional automation. And if you think about it more carefully, it's actually pretty non-trivial. First of all, the incoming objects that uh, you expect the, ro the robots to handle are typically presented in a very unstructured layout. Every action that is to be done by the robot is different. And you can't just program the robot to repeat the same instructions again and again. And second, there's a wide variety of different objects that the robot will need to be able to take. And it's impossible to pre-configure the system to memorize this large number of different objects. What this means is that the AI system needs to surely generalize its behavior and its understanding to new situations. And this further distinguished this task from more traditional robotics. It's hard because of all the variations you described and the, all this challenge involved, you can't directly program. So what's the alternative? How, how to actually solve it? Have you solved it? So what distinguishes uh, coherence AI and traditional techniques is that we uh, use machine learning and more particular deep learning, which has been a very promising technique being popularized in recent years, thanks to the advances in big data and more powerful computing. And what's different about this approach is that rather than directly programming the robots in terms of code, we actually program the robots uh, in terms of data. And we, we use those machine learning and deep learning algorithms to distill knowledge out of those data. And so those data can be in various forms. They can be in terms of human-provided annotations, or it can be in terms of robots' own experience interacting with the world. And through those data, the robot learns what behavior is it, what behavior leads to actual productive outcomes and which behaviors need to not productive outcomes or um, even errors that we want to avoid. And through this learning process, the AI system generalizes to new situations and learn from its own mistakes. And I will actually say that very confidently that uh, with those techniques, it can place it no longer something that's kind of scary for automation. And we are seeing very promising results uh, with the systems that we are actively deploying um, to our customers. You talk about systems that are being deployed to customers. What should I envision there? What is an example of what this could look like in a warehouse? Actually, in many different forms. And so in some cases, uh, we are actually just providing the brain to an overall automation system where basically we provide our own camera system and our own software that understands the environment and thinks about what action then to be taken. Um, and then we work with other partners to provide the entire automation system. So those partners might be very well-established uh, warehouse automation providers. 
So uh, in those warehouses, uh, if you go there, uh, you might see um, a lot of like shadows, automated vehicles moving around. But before coherence, you will see uh, human workers still stationed next to uh, those automation systems where they need to still manually picking and placing things. And with coherence, uh, you'll see um, our camera systems are intelligently listening about the environment, instructing um, robotic arms. In this case, it'll be provided by our uh, partners, which then perform the task of picking and placing objects automatically. And in parallel, we also are deploying whole systems ourselves. And we have various products, which I'm happy to uh, dive into more detail. And in those warehouses, you'll actually see coherence are uh, designed entire systems operating uh, in various segments in, in warehouses. Got it. So I am curious, what are some examples of these full solutions that are being delivered? Yeah, so basically our systems are alternating various steps in the order fulfillment process, typically in the e-commerce, uh, logistics, and some rising new industries. And there's different products because each warehouse is kind of built differently, although there are a few categories depending on how automated they are already. One example uh, is uh, what we call a robotic footwall system. So this is a system that can be deployed to warehouses with a, a relatively low degree of automation. So this system will process an incoming batch of mixed product objects, which have been um, picked up by human pickers in upstream. They come to the system and the task of the station is to sort those objects into different orders, typically in the range of between 20 to 80 orders. And it's called Kotwa because there's typically a few walls around the robot or human operators before, before coherence where uh, the robot will need to pick objects one by one, scan them, and uh, according to the order information, uh, put them onto the right slot onto the wall. So this is one example. And as I mentioned, so there's also um, cases where if the warehouse is more automated, like the, if they're employed with shuttle systems, in those warehouses, human workers no longer need to move around in the warehouse, uh, which can be, which can be uh, quite, quite exhausting. Um, so in those cases, the, the codes where they need to pick objects from will be presented to humans via some shuttle system. And those stations where the human workers are, are standing still, uh, become a potential integration point for automation. And previously, we would call those goes to person picking. And now I think the new popular term is goes to robot picking, uh, where we basically will have a robot arm waiting for our toes to arrive one by one. And according to uh, a system instruction, picking either one or several objects from each toad. And those toads will typically uh, only contain, say, one type of product or a few, num few type of products yes. placed into different compartments inside the toads. And then placing them either to another toad or some downstream destination. Going back to the technical side of things, when you said now with deep learning methods, we are able to teach the robots, pick and place, right? So we can go beyond traditional programming of robots. That's a pretty big umbrella term, deep learning, data. Can you say a bit more? What is under the hood? What are the key ideas that allow 
the covariance system to actually understand how to do pick and place one level deeper or two levels deeper than lots of data and deep learning. One of the key ideas is um, deep reinforcement learning, uh, which uh, I've personally had the fortune to work on during my PhD study and during my time at Covariance. I'm sorry, my time at OpenAI, and of course now uh, at Covariance. So the, there's actually, I guess, two key ideas that, that uh, when combined comes the term uh, deep reinforcement learning. So I guess one is deep learning and the other is uh, reinforcement learning. And the idea of deep learning is that basically uh, we have all those data and we want a learning system to be able to, first of all, be able to interpret or understand all those data or explain the, the correspondence between certain inputs and outputs. So we need the system to be very expressive. And for more traditional machine learning approaches, uh, we typically do this by hand engineering certain features. Um, extracting them out of the data we have, and then use simple models to try to fit those data. And this, the performance of such systems highly depend on the quality of features that can, we can come up, um, and require a specialized knowledge, all the domains that we are, we're trying to tackle. Um, for example, uh, for images, uh, you need to have domain understanding of image processing computer vision in order to come up with like high quality features. And what sets differently apart is that rather than hand engineering those features, we try to come up with those architectures of neural networks, which are very expressive parameterized models, and they can have vast capacity. And, and wouldn't suffer from the problem of underheating, which, uh, which is a common problem that we will occur, uh, that we will encounter if we try to use, uh, more simplified models. And on the other hand, not only does it not underheat, we can impose certain prior knowledge into how we design those architectures, uh, so that you can achieve good generalization performance. Some of those prior knowledge involve, um, using a convolution architecture. Uh, which basically leverages the translational invariance in when we, when we think about the computational process that should be involved with, for example, images, text, or other data with uh, all those kind of locality structure. And attention will be another recently popularized building block in those architectures, uh, where we want to allow the architecture to focus on one portion of data at a time and also querying other, maybe not very localized uh, feature information by a kind of a lookup operation uh, and aggregate oscillation. So it's very powerful because we don't really need to prescribe how exactly the computation happened in terms of code. Uh, we just need to have some intuition about the kind of computation that we want that we're going to perform, design the architecture that enables those priors. And then, then with those, we can build powerful systems that actually turns out to work quite well against across very, very different disciplines. Another um, key idea that is uh, reinforcement learning. So I guess um, to explain reinforcement learning, we need to look at maybe other paradigms that are um, popular in machine learning. I think the most popular paradigm used in, in the industry is supervised learning, where we will provide label examples where say the, the input can be some images and the labels on them could be different 
classes of objects that we um, want the system to detect. For example, this is a bottle uh, and that is a that is plastic bag. And we need to we need to collect all those data using prior knowledge of uh, human. Um, so this can work well uh, in some domains where collecting those superficial is cheap, but there's a, in, in some cases, collecting those can be very expensive. Um, for example, uh, if you want to acquire like a really understanding of the world, uh, it's actually kind of non-trivial to collect supervision about how, how, how distant everything is away from you. And sometimes it, it's just that we are actually not very good teachers to the robots. For example, if we want other robotic systems to reason about different strategies to grasp objects and moving them, those are actually pretty challenging physics problems that we we'll need to solve. Of course, we can say that we can do that easily with our hands. But uh, if we look at today's hardware, actually, we, we can't just use a human hands equivalent. We need to actually design some different hardwares to serve the needs of different products that we need to tackle. And even with human equipment hands, the control of them is actually highly non-trivial and not something that we can, can just kind of easily provide labels to the robots. So in those situations, it's actually more important for the learning system to learn from its own trial and error. Uh, what this means is that we want the system to kind of explore uh, the environment using different strategies that it can come up. And it'll get some feedback from the environment by being some. Like if it successfully picked up something, it will know that it's a good thing um, and it should reinforce such behavior more often. And if it did a bad thing, like I uh, missed the pick, uh, or it picked something up but dropped it, or, or even worse, like it picked up something and maybe squeezed too hard and damaged something. So those will be negative signals to the system um, that we want to, uh, that we want to avoid in the future. So I think it's the, so the idea of reinforcement learning is that uh, we want to design algorithms so that those learning systems can improve itself um, from just those signals. We're really not prescribing, oh, the robot, you should first detect objects in the scene, do some calculation of the physics properties, and then based on that, do some maybe uh, look up um, from your database of pre-configured strategies of how to look them up. We're really just saying, this is the space. This is the range of actions you can explore. This is good. This is bad. Go figure out the rest. It sounds almost too good to be true, but it actually turns out to to work um, really magically well sometimes. Um, if, we, if we design good algorithms, have good setup, and have enough data to feed to this system and the learning process. Now, the general trend in artificial intelligence right now is a trend towards foundation models. What role do you expect them to play or are they already playing maybe at Covariant? The rise of foundation models is it's a really exciting development in recent years. Maybe I can uh, first explain uh, a little bit what foundation models are. So those are models that are trained on a vast amount of diverse data. And as a result, they, they are so powerful and they can be adapted to many different downstream applications. And I guess the most notable example uh, in recent years is probably uh, GPT. So this is a family of large language models developed by OpenAI. So these models are 
trained on a tremendous amount of natural language data from the Ethernet. And they had been used to power many exciting applications. Like one example is a GitHub Copilot. So this is a service that provides uh, intelligent code completion suggestions. Actually, I use it on a daily basis and, and find it to be um, really amazing and uh, a very good productivity boost. And another example uh, is, uh, of course, uh, ChatGPT. Uh, so uh, it has just been released uh, last November, but it has been absolutely mind-blowing. It's the most powerful AI chatbot that I've ever seen and played with. So the connection between foundation models and coherence, um, so it's actually quite connected uh, if we think about coherence of building universal AI. And I think the, so this idea basically contrasts um, the kind of still the mainstream approach right now of applying machine learning industry, where we kind of train different models to solve relatively narrowly defined tasks, even some data sets that, that we collect in, in some specific domain. And instead, our philosophy at Coherent has been to try to develop a common AI system. Uh, so we actually call this Coherent Brain. It's kind of our brand name for our AI system. And we hope that this single brain and power all of our use cases. And the rise of foundation models, uh, very similar in philosophy, they kind of give us some very exciting future directions where, uh, where I think we can take our technology to, to the next level. So one example is that we can leverage uh, internet scale data by images, videos, and text that are being trained, uh, that are being used to train those foundation models. And we can use them to improve the generalization of our coherent brain. So maybe one example I can give here is that there one uh, further challenge of like say can place is that there's a lot of non-field scenarios that we need the system to understand and and react to. And one one such example um, is that let's think about the robot picking up copper boxes. These are probably the simplest possible objects that you, you can expect a, a robotic system to pick, but it's actually not that easy sometimes. For example, if the box is not, the box is not sealed tight. And when you pick it up, the, the lid can actually open. Um, then what, what do you, uh, what can you do in that case? I guess this, this will be kind of an exception scenario and you might need to do different things depending on which direction is the lid open. Uh, if you are picking up the lid and, uh, it's just open slightly, maybe you can still safely place it to the destination, but you will need to move very slowly or only in certain, certain, um, uh, motions. Uh, if it's open on the bottom, maybe you, you actually will need to more tightly do different actions or you might even need uh, humans help in that case. Um, and it's very important in those for the system to be able to understand those different situations. And if we think about traditional machine learning approaches, or even if we say, well, let's use, uh, Reinforcing learning. If we want to use, say, supervised learning, what we'll need to do is collect enough data where there's some diversity of different objects with the lid open and then provide human annotations. Like this, in this example, the lid is open on the top. Uh, in another example, the lid is open on the bottom and so forth. And it can be actually quite costly and will take a lot of time to collect those examples, given that it's kind of a rare event. And even with reinforcing learning, it's actually 
some challenges here because um, how would you give the supervision to the robot in this case of what it should do? You will need to come up with uh, some reward signal to the robot. And in contrast, I think what the Ethernet scale data and the and the and what the foundation models and uh, inspires us with is that we can actually leverage all those kind of free label data out there um, to give our system some common sense understanding. Like for us humans, uh, we you probably don't need to see like a, a hundred or a thousand examples of bit open to to know this concept, and we probably can't even recall what was the first open lid that we that we've seen before that taught us this understanding. It's kind of just intuitive common sense knowledge that we acquired. And from our analysis of the foundation models, it's also um, uh, something that these models seem to start to possess, basically acquiring a common sense understanding from those international data. I think it's very promising that we can try to leverage either those models, data, or the training techniques to equip our uh, coherent brain system with such common sense understanding. So that for those long tail scenarios, we can program uh, or um, or have the systems understand and adapt quickly in those situations. That's really exciting, of course, because ultimately the long tail, if you don't address it correctly, you're just not producing any value because there's too many exceptions called. And this idea that foundation models trained on internet data can bring in common sense to help understand robotic picking. That's, I mean, I'm super excited about this because it's in some sense a very interesting form of generalization because not much internet data involves bin picking scenarios. Usually internet data is most people would say it looks more interesting than bin picking scenarios, but somehow there can be a transfer of concepts like a lid that's slightly open, that's fully open, a box that's damaged, something packaging that has come loose. All those things can somehow transfer over, which is really exciting that those things are becoming possible. When you think more widely about the AI robotics frontier, Rocky, let's say, you know, not specifically to Coverant, of course, Coverant is, is at the frontier. But if you think more broadly, what are some other things that you see at the frontier that get you very excited? Of course, I guess I'll wear a bias lens uh, due to my experience at Coverant. Um, but I think uh, some of the frontiers, they, they're definitely what we have an eye on, but are definitely not specific to the to the uh, kind of applications that coherence, um, that coherence working on. And I guess I'll, I will mention two things. One thing is, um, how we think about having extremely reliable systems and how AI can enable that. I think, so this, maybe one example, um, other than coherence I'll give is autonomous driving. So hugely challenging problem has huge market size. The challenge, one of the challenges is that you, you really need those systems to be highly reliable because the cost of error is so high. And in some sense, uh, if we think about the technology stack needed to power autonomous driving, there's actually many common components to what we need to build here at Coverance, uh, like uh, perception, understanding of the world, and uh, planning uh, or, or of control to try to figure out what the robot, like either arms or autonomous vehicles into doing the world. And why is getting high reliability so challenging? One of the reasons is that those building blocks of the systems, uh, so we, we are, uh, both, uh, in both cases, we need to employ a lot of, uh, AI powered systems and they, they're seldomly by themselves a hundred percent correct. And each component can 
and make their own mistakes. So in those cases, I guess like, um, how, how would you then build an overall very robust systems? And of course, one direction will be to try to push individual components to higher and higher accuracy, like uh, inventing new ways to leverage a uh, broader amount of data, try to do unsupervised learning, try to invent new architectures and so forth. But a different angle is um, how can we, how can we kind of compose those components so that maybe some components can help correct other components' errors? Or um, can you have each component, like image detection module, some visual semantic prediction module, can they better understand when they are uncertain about the situation, when it is more likely to make an error, so that we can, so that the system overall should be in a more alerted state if it's in, actually in a new situation. And maybe we can um, fall back control to humans uh, or, uh, or uh, spend more compute, maybe at expense of reaction time or uh, depending on what trade-off is reasonable or it should make. I think those kind of like system level questions are actually quite important and not very uh, well studied yet. So, uh, so that's something very interesting to me. Another thing related to reliability is like how fast we can improve a system's performance. And there's, there's several axes to, to measure, like to measure this. One is like how much data is needed. And another, I guess it's like how much time is needed to, uh, for example, collect those data or retrain the model. And so the experience at, at Covariant, I, I will say that if we have a well-defined problem that we want to solve, with enough data and enough time to train the model, we can usually get to very good performance. But time is money, and uh, it's also not enough to uh, to say, yeah, let's just collect data um, and wait for a while to get a good performance. And there, there are cases where we actually need the system to be able to very rapidly react to changes to the environments. Uh, a very, very real example to us is that, let's say, if a product goes on sale um, and this might only last for a few days or even a few hours, um, and maybe suddenly uh, your system cannot, cannot handle the situation anymore. Maybe to give a more concrete example, let's say you are, you're picking up like bottles that are like smooth uh, on the surface. Uh, so every Every uh, place on it uh, is uh, pickable. Um, so the robot is uh, very high performing. Um, but suddenly, uh, maybe uh, a new product uh, comes out where uh, half of the half of the product surface actually is uh, bumpy and cannot be handled by uh, the the same gripper uh, that we use. So if your system can't adapt to such change quickly enough, um, then you will you will. Um, you'll suffer from a uh, uh, mess of productivity uh, for, for the period where you are still improving your performance. So I think there, there are different techniques that, that, we, that are being explored, for example, in academia uh, or at Covariant about like how to make the system be able to improve more quickly um, using different approaches. And of course, you can characterize equip some uh, common, common knowledge, common sense, but there are other uh, exciting uh, uh, there are other exciting possibilities in China have to dice more. But overall, like I think those two, like getting highly reliable systems and fast improvability uh, will be in my mind uh, the AI frontier or robotics. Yeah, very interesting, Rocky. And I really like one of the things you mentioned in the first part, which is 
the notion of a system that can take a step back, understand when there is uncertainty, maybe use more compute cycles to make a decision as needed, rather than always going through the same amount of compute, even though sometimes things are easy, sometimes things are hard. I think you know, that kind of innovation, it's very different from pretty much anything out there today in practice or in research. It seems the default is a neural net with a fixed depth. Things get processed by the neural net and something comes out and that's it. There is no no room for deciding to spend more time. It's just everything's gone to the neural net and done. And so that option, even though clearly for humans it exists, right? This notion of taking a step back, the current standard paradigm doesn't have it inside of it. You need to step out of it, invent something different. Um, and I really like the second example you gave because I mean, by default, even for myself, when I think of the long tail of things our robots run into, I think of, oh, long tail, a lot of things, but it's in the, it's in the, in the tail. It doesn't happen too often. And maybe it happens once now. And then maybe an hour later, something happens. But I love your example because you're essentially highlighting that you could have a, a window of several hours within which the only thing you get to see is the long tail over and over and over. And you need to learn on the spot or it's too late. And it's, it's very interesting because that's not how I think about it by default. And I think most people, but the reality is that it happens a lot with these sales that all of a sudden something completely new packaged in a completely new way, complicated packaging, fancy packaging and so forth to help them with the sale. And all of a sudden, much harder to pick. You need instant adaptation or it's it's too late. Now, that's on the technical side. How about on the commercial, the application side? You've talked about warehouse picking, obviously. You've mentioned self-driving cars. Are there any other AI robotics applications that you see on the horizon and that are exciting to you? I can probably answer this in uh, kind of like two perspectives. One is like things that uh, I think coherent um, can potentially expand to in the future and also more uh, widely, like maybe it's not within conventional anytime soon, but uh, I'm personally very excited about. So in the first category, there's of course a wide range of different use cases that we get exposure to from talking to our customers. And one angle is that if we start from the current systems that we are selling, if we look at the upstream and downstream processes, some of those are automated, but some are still uh, manually done by human workers. Um, and those are potential future directions for us to automate so that we have a more integrated automation system. And one such uh, more concrete example is that going back to the earlier robotic footfall, where the robot is sorting items in different orders. So currently after this is done, let's say uh, all the items of a given order have arrived in one slot on the wall. So the other side of the robots, currently we actually still need human workers to take all those items and then put them in a shipping box uh, to be shipped out. And this can sometimes actually become a point of bottleneck to the overall system's throughput. If the, the human packer in this case cannot keep up with uh, how fast the robot is uh, performing. And we've actually uh, seen this happen. And if we can further automate the, the packing process, this can, uh, on one hand, potentially improve the throughput of the overall system. And another benefit is that we can potentially further improve uh, robustness, uh, since that we basically introduce more 
AI touch points uh, in this overall system. And when the, when the system downstream is, um, for example, like rearranging those uh, objects in the shipping box, um, it can more intelligently, more intelligently chat for any errors that may have been made by the earlier steps in the process. And so this can potentially further reduce the error rate of the system. Or as we've observed, actually, our, our system is already performing pretty well. It can potentially uh, offer some trade-off. Maybe like the upstream process can be slightly less careful, uh, maybe uh, to trade with higher efficiency and rely on the downstream system to provide this check so that as a whole, we obtain a system that is both uh, sufficiently reliable and as and much more productive than the system state. So these are the, so outside of covariance, I guess, um, I'm also quite excited about some opportunities that I already see, like maybe other start, startups are tackling or uh, maybe could be tackling the future. Um, and maybe one thing that's relevant to, not relevant, but like just interesting to me and may not have like huge direct commercial value, but I think it could be very impactful is um, the potential application in basic science um, where uh, we can use robots to basically automate scientific experiments. And it's, um, it's relevant to me, I guess, because, um, so my wife, uh, Zhao Yu, um, so she, she has a PhD in organic chemistry. She did her, uh, PhD in Hong Kong. So, um, through that, I kind of got a glimpse of like basically some quite laborious tasks that those scientific researchers need to perform in their labs on a, on a daily basis. And I guess for chemistry, it's, Maybe an analogy is like cooking a meal that's maybe not very tasty. And it's like, actually can take a very long time with many different steps then to perform with great precision. Um, and sometimes you can even involve potentially like hazardous materials. And so you need to be very, very careful with those. Um, and same for a lot of like biology experiments that require a lot of manual labor. And I'm really excited about the, the potential of robotic automation. I think the direct value that it provides is that uh, those researchers can then focus more of their time on designing experiments, thinking about future research directions and analyzing the results of those experiments. But also I think there's value in more standardized procedure of performing all those experiments, making the results more reproducible. Uh, we can collect more data, um, have the process being more observable with all the sensors we have deployed. And also there's chance for greater economy of scale. So um, I guess analogy uh, for, for computer science would be the kind of cloud computing platforms that are being uh, provided by uh, say Amazon, Google, Microsoft. And I can imagine similar like crowd, uh, cloud labs that can um, provide the experiment needs uh, of many different researchers in those basic science domains. So I think all of those are, uh, I've seen a, a few startups in, in those domains and there's also academic papers about like using robots to uh, speed up experiments. So very promising development. Uh, I guess it's a bit further away from coherence, but there's actually some shared challenges and, and overall quite exciting too. I think it's a really exciting thing to be thinking about, Rocky, how AI robotics could actually power a scientific revolution in any kind of sciences where physical experimentation, largely manual experimentation right now, is the bottleneck. And 
It's something that I don't think too many people are thinking about yet. Of course, you're not going to be the first one to mention it here ever in the world, but I think the opportunity is ahead of us. And yeah, it'd be very exciting to see something play out there that really revolutionizes potentially medicine, or at least invention of new medications, invention of new supplements, invention of all kinds of new compounds, materials, and so forth that are currently bottlenecked by experimental cycles, sometimes hazardous, as you mentioned. Now, when I, when I think about when we started Covarian, at the time, we, including you, uh, of course, we left OpenAI, which was a pretty great place to be. I'm kind of curious, what made you at the time so convinced that, despite the fact you're at such a great place already, that founding Covarian was the right thing to pursue for you? Yeah. So let's first of all, OpenAI has been a really a great place for me to, um, to be. Uh, there's so many talented people working towards a very ambitious goal. And I really learned a lot uh, during my time there. So at the time, I was uh, closer to the robotics team at OpenAI. I think back then, the focus has been more kind of pushing the frontier of basic learning algorithms and demonstrating them on very, very challenging tasks. Like we, what, uh, what we later learned about, like, say, using robotic hands to solve phobic cubes. So these tasks were a little bit further away from Things that potentially can be actually viable in the near term, uh, general, like near term commercial value. So how all of this connected to, to me is that, so first of all, I guess like actually there, there was an earlier podcast, uh, where, uh, where Peter Chen, our CEO of Coherence and also a long term friend of mine explained her, his side of the story. I remember him mentioning there's like a sketchy, but delicious Chinese restaurant where we were like discussing how we can push our research to the next level. I guess this is in high version. Actually, honestly, I didn't remember which restaurant we were in or whether it was at a restaurant, um, but also my memory was fading. What I do remember is that I kind of had this realization that to solve ro robotics, um, it's not enough to just develop and improve algorithms, um, but it might be more important to get access to, to the right data. And I kind of have, um, more general notion of data here, where it ju doesn't just include like, say, images, text, videos, human annotations, or whatnot, but it actually also includes the range of different tasks that we, uh, that we want the, the robot to, to learn to perform. And this is important uh, also to, in terms of how we evaluate our, our advances in algorithms, like ideally evaluate on the things that's actually relevant to, to what we want them to solve. And it also maybe matters to like, what kind of algorithms you can come up with or can be made powerful depending on the scale of data you have. And on the other hand, it's kind of limited in terms of what tasks uh, you can have access to in uh, in academic setting. And my belief was that to, to really make AI robotics work, really to scale all of this up, we have to do this in a commercial setting where we can deploy robots at large scale automate the tasks that people actually care about and have this all running in a self-sustainable manner where the systems that we're already deploying is generating real value. And through all those experiences, we improve the learning system. I think that was the key realization for me to uh, decide to start Covariance. Now, at the time, you're actually working on meta-learning, right? Learning to learn both for reinforcement learning and 
imitation learning. It's kind of interesting that in what you said earlier, kind of coming full circle in that you want our covariant robots to instantly learn about this long tail scenario on the fly, because when it's part of a sale, it'll be there for the next few hours continually. You need to adapt right away. But maybe take us back first. You wrote some of the earliest modern era papers on learning to learn for reinforcement learning, for imitation learning. How do you decide to work in that direction, which was not a common direction? There was not a lot of work happening there. How do you even decide that was interesting? And from there, maybe, how do you see that field has evolved from where it was back then to how do you look at it today? Yeah, that's a, it's a really good question. I remember that I didn't start out like say, hey, this is the direction I want to, I want to go in. Um, I think the story was like, I was really amazed by some of the advances in deep reinforcement learning uh, at a time when I started my PhD. Um, I think it was when we were first seeing robots learning from just its own experience, like learning to walk, learning to uh, play video games. But the, the catch is that it, it requires a vast amount of data for it to um, acquire such behaviors. And there's not a lot of like transfer from earlier tasks and how they for is kind of stupid to, to humans, to be honest, it's kind of just like doing very nice random exploration. Uh, and if you actually see the robot, uh, in, in action in real world, luckily we did a lot of experiments in simulation, but in real world, it will be quite painful to watch. You have like say robot dogs or, uh, robot humanoids just wiggling everywhere and hoping to learn like how to, how to stand, how to walk and so forth. And if we compare that with the, the human learning process, we, we can explore, uh, the world in, in much more, um, in a much more sophisticated manner where we have like low level skills that we reuse. We reason about how we explore different options and we can learn rapidly based on our, our interaction. I think one example Peter you gave back then was like you're like moving to a new house and like you're trying to find where the where the shower head was. Um and there's probably like some typical location where people assume where that is. And then if it's if it's not there, then like maybe you'll look somewhere else. But you'll do so like in very rapid manner and leveraging a lot of provider, maybe within a fraction of a second. Um and those type of like I guess skill um learning and reuse and like high level, like reasoning about, uh, what, what it can leverage from your past experience. Those are things that are kind of lacking in the reinforcement learning algorithm that we've had. So there's a, there's a field for, uh, or like a subject under reinforcement learning called hierarchical reinforcement learning. Uh, that's kind of focused on like giving the learning algorithm or the agent more structure, like maybe explicitly think about what skills it should first learn which then can leverage to learn uh, more long horizon or more challenging tasks. So at the time I was banging my head against this, uh, this problem, I really wanted to, to solve it, but I didn't go very far. And I think the realization I, I came to is that maybe those things shouldn't be baked into the algorithm or the structure of, of the agents. Um, maybe those things should themselves be learned from data, like uh, what skills should exist, what should be the learning algorithm's behavior. And at the time, uh, meta-learning has already started become, uh, having some signs of life in, in other domains, not in robotics, like in uh, computer vision, many computer vision at the time. And the philosophy of that is rather than using data to improve 
a system's performance under a specific task. Um, you try to use data to improve the learning process itself. And the, the kind of analogy for computer vision would be like, uh, rather than needing like collecting labeled, say, pairs of image buses, and then use like, um, say, some optimization algorithms to learn the parameters of your network. You will actually come up with some structure that's taking maybe even a few examples that we give to the system and give it the, the capacity of computation to learn whatever it needs uh, based on those examples so that it can make more correct predictions when presented with new examples. And the analogy for robotics for reinforcing learning is that maybe we can take inspiration from this and actually um, use the previous data or any sort of data we can think of to influence how the, how the agent explores the world or to learn from its past experience. Um, and I guess the analogy for, for humans is that when we learn like new related skills, the, the incremental effort becomes lower and lower. Like if we um, learn to play the piano, as you become more proficient, the, the effort of like learning a new piece um, and a similar difficulty becomes like easier and easier. And so that was kind of like all of the considerations that, that kind of I was, I was going through when, when thinking about like starting, uh, when starting uh, uh, to, to explore meta learning. Um, and that basically, if we want the machine learning algorithms to be, to be more successful and to have truly intelligent AI, they, they must be able to leverage what they've learned in the past to help them learn better in the future. So I guess that, yeah, if we think, you could think about like where meta learning is, um, is today. It has been a few years, I guess, since I, since I was doing pure academic research. But I think it's actually been, been really exciting. And I think one of the most exciting developments maybe, maybe it's actually through other related fields. And I was speaking more in particular, the large language models. And there's actually some very converging themes because in those models, you can prompt the models to then perform a very diverse set of downstream tasks. And those prompts can maybe include like a few examples that you're giving to those models. And the tasks that they can then perform uh, will include such as like writing poems, answering like custom support questions, querying database, and, and so forth. And I guess if we view this capability through the lens of meta learning, I think the process that, that was used to train those large language models which is basically extremely simple. We're really just trying to get a model to predict the next possible word. Uh, it's such a simple algorithm. And through that, and through the vast amount of data it has seen, it has acquired this behavior to quickly learn and adjust uh, what it should do based on like the past token it has seen. I think it's, it's been really exciting and I'm very excited about such advances uh, starting to get applied and actually getting deployed to, to, uh, to things other than the language domain. And for example, like getting new visual semantics understanding or uh, new robotic manipulation skills from its own trial and error. So it's definitely still active area of research. I think we, we are actually going to start seeing this happening uh, at Coherent in our, uh, in our systems. Very exciting, Rocky. Now, switching from the technical to maybe more your, your personal path in some sense, you are likely the single most productive person in the world, as far as I can tell. And as far as many people tell me who are, you know, who work with you, any productivity tricks you can share? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. I guess I can't really, uh, can't really 
say that or um, I guess I, I know so many uh, talented and very productive people, I guess, um, around my life. And of course, right now I call it this. So I feel very lucky to work with so many great people here. But since you asked, I guess, like, I have to share something. I think one, maybe one tip, and I guess this is also maybe more for me observing other people since I'm, I'm bad at observing mm-hmm. myself, is that it, it pays off to um, invest some efforts uh, consciously to, um, to make you more productive. Some examples could include like learning to use you know, pro- productivity tools. Um, like, uh, trying out like a new development environment. Uh, I guess this is more specific to computer science, I guess, like new IDEs, new shortcuts were like GitHub Copilot, which I recently found to be, uh, a great productivity helper. Highly recommend people to try it out. I'm not taking commissions just to get the clarify. And, or, uh, in, in more specialized domains, uh, build tools to make myself, uh, more effective. And I guess that. That could be, um, I think the, the power of software makes like automation kind of like a, a central philosophy of what we're doing on a day-to-day basis. Um, and of course, learn from others. If you find some other people is highly productive, then try to and see what you can learn from them. And one more thing I, I would say is that, and I like I realized this more and more uh, from my time at Covariant, which is that rather than just focusing on the day-to-day productivity, it's could be more important to um, uh, keep an eye on the high-level direction, whether like you are, you're working on the most important things towards whatever goals that you are, you're setting out for yourself. And sometimes it, it's even helpful to maybe take some time to zoom out and, and revisit what you're doing. The worst case you want to avoid is like you are being productive day by day, um, you're matching like maybe like an instantaneous velocity. But if you, if there's actually more important or more impactful things that you could be working on, rather than what you're doing at the moment, those could be much more important productivity improvements than just focusing on the moment. These are some great advice, Rocky. Thank, thank you for sharing. And one of the things you said reminded me of the beginning of your PhD, actually many years ago, you said sometimes you want to explore tools, you might want to build some tools that make you more productive. I remember that you built a little tool that allowed to easily launch experiments on AWS that made you a lot more productive. But of course, you shared it with the entire lab, with other people and so forth, and made everybody more productive around you because they could launch their experiments so much more easily at scale than they could before you had built that tool. And being able to, I guess, build those tools that don't exist yet that make you more productive is quite a superpower too. Now, I know you work really, really hard, but I got to imagine that sometimes you, you try to relax and get away from things. What are some things you like to do to truly relax. And I, I do think it's quite important to, uh, to have a balance and to take time off from work and to kind of recharge yourself. So a few things I enjoy. One is, uh, hiking. Um, so, um, right now I'm kind of traveling back and forth between Hong Kong and Bay area. And luckily, like in, in both areas, there's a lot of like good trails and I enjoy hiking with friends and, and so forth. And in Hong Kong, I'm, I'm actually raising a rabbit together with my, with my wife, Zhao Yu. Uh, so, uh, its name is a uh, Pathan. I'm very adorable. Guess, uh, great, uh, temporary distraction from work. Uh, when, when I was there, uh, I was like, now nah, just playing with it. And actually recently I've 
started to learn to play piano again, kind of inspired by my wife, Zhao Yin. She uh, rented a piano about a year ago uh, when we moved into the, to the current apartment in Hong Kong. And um, so I think my initial motivation was to kind of increase its utilization rate. Maybe I should give it a try. And it turns out to be um, very rewarding. It's definitely kind of hard to learn, which is also interesting, I guess, to someone who's thinking about learning algorithms. And I quite enjoy it as a kind of context switching for work. Thanks for sharing, Rocky. And this reminds me actually of something I maybe should have made part of your intro, but I'll share it now here at the end is that at Berkeley, uh, when you were an undergrad student, you founded the Chinese a cappella group. And so music is, is kind of part of your life for a long time. And it sounds like you switched from singing to piano playing now. Yeah, you guys, I wouldn't really call it switching, though maybe like I see piano as maybe slightly less disturbing to neighbors, although maybe our neighbors might not completely agree. And yeah, I, I guess both are, both are quite enjoyable. Are you still singing today? From time to time, yeah. Well, anybody listening, if you search for the Berkeley Chinese a cappella group somewhere out there on the internet, you'll find some beautiful recordings. I've actually heard Rocky sing and it's, it's really impressive. So yeah, go, go find it when you have a chance. Well, thank you, Rocky, for making the time such a great conversation. Thank you, Peter. Really enjoyed this.